Last call, children K through three, right through that door. Good morning. As we continue in our sermon series of questions that you all have come up with, I hinted last week that we got a couple questions specifically about the church. Uh, They were these two. What is the church supposed to be? And how can the church become what it intended, not just hypocritical jerks? And now those are not my words. Those are... But I'm going to take that question at face value. And I'm going to warn you immediately the problem with this. So I don't know how many of you know that Presbyterianism, in its origin anyway, uh, was the Church of Scotland. So it came from Scotland. And there's a saying in Scotland, or I guess about the Scottish, that uh, in any given room you can have three Scotsmen and four opinions. (laughs) And in that great legacy, I'd like to... Talk about the church and say that if you ask three different preachers, you would likely get four different opinions about what that question is. What is the church supposed to be? So we're going to try to frame that in terms of scripture and what the New Testament and the Bible and Jesus say that the church is supposed to be. But I want to get behind that question just a little bit to figure out why that came up. Um, and if you, if you Google a question like, um, If you look for a testimony of someone who left the church, you will find dozens, if not hundreds and thousands of blogs and stories and uh, articles and magazines about why people left. And sometimes it's because the church uh, has treated someone in a dehumanizing way. They felt uh, completely dehumanized by their experience. Sometimes they were in a church and it just felt like a social clique. Sometimes they were in a church that elevated their political views above Jesus, uh, which, disenfr- no, which no matter which way you lean on that, you'll disenfranchise half the population. Whether you, whether you lean to, it doesn't matter if you're elevating your political views over Jesus, which by the way, in 148 hours in the week, we're only asking one of them to be dedicated to worship of Jesus on Sunday morning. Obviously, we would like to see more than that, but um, for churches that can't Set that aside, that has turned people off, pushed them away, and they never walk through the doors of a church again. And then sometimes, uh, people, there are even articles like this that say, um, why I left the church behind but not Christianity, or why I left the church behind and not Jesus, which is an interesting sentiment, especially when we consider that Jesus died for his church, and so there's... Uh, I think in actuality, there's some cognitive dissonance there. It's how can you say you love Jesus and not love what Jesus loved, which is his church, and he didn't love it because it's perfect, and he loved it because he made it perfect. Uh, and then there are others, and sometimes people, they sit at home alone and they read their Bible and they get this very idealistic version of what church should be. And then they come to church and they find their experience to be completely disappointing. Everyone around them is an utter disappointment. And the comedian George Carlin once said, said it this way. He said, inside every cynical person is a disappointed idealist. And I think that's actually a lot of what we experience here. We experience a lot of people who have this ideal of what other people are supposed to be like. And by the way, they don't live up to it themselves. But they expect others to live up to it. And when they don't, they become cynical and jaded against the church. Uh, and... Uh, Here's a quote from just one of these many articles from 
uh, a famous writer who just passed away at age 37 uh, two weeks ago, Rachel Held Evans. She said it this way because she had an article about the top 15 reasons that she left the church. Of course, she made her way back. But she said this, sometimes, uh, let's see, nope, her quote, not mine, okay. Uh, I am convinced that what drives most people away from Christianity is not the cost of discipleship, but rather the cost of false fundamentals, end quote. And what she meant by that is elevating these other things within a church above the, con- the shared content of Christianity and Jesus. And so here's the problem, is that many people report leaving the faith because of the atmosphere of the church and the behavior of Christians. Some leave established religion uh, and claim to practice on their own, and others leave behind faith altogether. But if you read these accounts, you'll see that very few of them leave the church because of the Bible, Jesus, or even because of human logic. They don't say, uh, I've disproved Christianity, so I'm leaving the church. It's always some other reason or some complex web of reasons. They leave because of these painful experiences, embarrassing cultural blunders, or a lack of Christ-centered faith in practice. And so, as we carry those questions with us, we're going to answer these two questions. One, what is the church supposed to be? And two, how can the church become what it's intended to be? Now, you may not resonate with any of those uh, those objections there, but I would imagine most of us have experienced at least one of those frustrations, if not more, um, or maybe even all of them. But uh, in a sense, you're all still here, so I'm literally preaching to the choir. Um, actually, this is literally, <laughs> figuratively preaching to the choir. But the, uh, the application that I want to get to today, and I'm going to tell you this from the outset so that you're listening for it, you're ready for it all along, is um, I want to talk about three different ideas that are all in the Bible. They're all in the church. They're all in Christian theology, but they get tangled and there are overlap. But It's three concepts. It's the Christian, the church, and the kingdom of God. And so those are distinguishable, but they're inseparable. So we can't pull them all the way apart uh, and say that, you know, they're all completely unrelated, but they are all related. But the question for us is, what is your role in each? And that's the only way we're going to be able to figure out not only what the church is supposed to be, but how we can become what the church is intended to be. So we're going to talk about the, the Christian, the church, and then the kingdom. And so with that in mind, would you please join me in prayer as we open up. Father God, we thank you for uh, the questions that you've given us this morning. We thank you that you are a God who does not shy away from our questions, from our doubts, uh, and from even our uh, frustrations with the church. We pray that you would guide us and lead us as we seek to turn to you for our answers. We pray that uh, not only you would answer these questions, but that you would set us on the right path that we may live as you intended us to live. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. And so the first thing I want to talk about, so we want to go from small to big. We're going to go Christian, church, kingdom, and you're going to see the overlap of all of them by the end, but we're just going to talk about where uh, each of these belong. And there are three things I want to tell you about what it means to be a Christian. Now, obviously, the entire Bible is given to us so we can understand what it means to be a Christian but I don't think anybody wants to hear me go through every book of the Bible this morning. And so I'm going to pull a couple of the recurring ones that we hear time and again. And the first is from Genesis 1.28. It starts there. It says, And God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. 
Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and of every other living thing that moves on earth. And you'll see this as you read through the book of Genesis. This is repeated time and time again. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. That be fruitful is God's first command to humanity and it doesn't stop. There's never a point in the Bible where he says, oh, that fruitful thing, you don't need to worry about that anymore. Uh, just you, you're done with the being fruitful and multiplying. You can just move on. No, he keeps that theme going. And so uh, you have to, you know, it, we could have our own sermon on just what that means in and of itself. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, some people don't like the language in there of subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth. But keep in mind in Genesis 1, God is giving a command to his creation to subdue it and have dominion over it. But the only definition at that point in time for what it means to subdue things and have dominion over them is given by God himself. And when God has dominion over things, he does so in a gracious and loving way that provides optimal flourishing for all parties involved. And so when we see that command to be fruitful and multiply, that means that we are to do that in the way that God does it, not for our own ego or pride. And the second... So I think that's the foundation from the first book of the Bible, or first chapter of the Bible, what it means to be a Christian, and that continues through today. The second is this, Genesis 12, 3, God's call to Abraham, he says this, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that may seem like a an odd one to pull out because that's specifically a call to Abraham. But we see God repeat that phrase again and again and again to all of Abraham's descendants. And here's the understanding that we're supposed to take from that. God says, I'm going to bless you. You're my people and I'm going to love you and bless you. But I'm not going to bless you so you can sit around and feel blessed. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all, to all the families of the earth. Now that sounds a lot like uh, New Testament preaching, doesn't it? That God is going to bless the many by blessing the few. He's going to come and bless his people, and then they are going to go be a blessing. And by that me- mechanism, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But that actually begins in Genesis 12, and you could even argue that it begins all the way in creation. And the third thing is this. So that be fruitful and multiply, be a blessing, um, and this, love God and love your neighbor. And this is our Scripture that should be in your bulletins today, it's Matthew 22, 35, uh, 35 to, I have 35 to 30, but that can't be the case, uh, 34 to 40, uh, it says this, but when the Pharisees heard that, uh, that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, what Jesus is giving us for the Christian life, this is not the really specific playbook that a lot of us would like to get from Jesus. It's not, you go do this and now you've satisfied my demands and now you're a good Christian. No, it's it's kind of open for your situation, for your uh, interpretation to a degree, but it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And here's the thing. All of the commandments in the Old Testament, 600 plus, are fulfilled by doing those two things. So he says, everything I've ever given you can be fulfilled by doing these two things perfectly. However, every week we come into church and we have this time where we confess that we have not done that. And then we go forward, you know, with the church to do that again. So this is what it means to be a Christian uh, and, you know, and following after Jesus and being saved by Jesus. And so that's the first thing that I wanted to talk about. So that's what a Christian is intended to be, someone who is fruitful, someone who is a blessing, and someone who loves God and loves their neighbor. And so the second thing, which is the big thing that we mean to talk about this morning, is the church. Now, the church is a huge topic, and what it's supposed to be is something that Christians have wrestled with for 2,000 years, which means if I give you one minute for every 100 years of the church's history, you would all say that, okay, your time's up. You had 20 minutes. You're done. Stop talking now. So we can't do that. But instead, what we see in Scripture is all kinds of language, which you probably have heard around the church. There's the language of talking about the church as the family of God in Hebrews 2 and Ephesians 5. The church is described as the bride of Christ, Revelation 21, 2 and Ephesians 5. And it's described as the body of Christ, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And so we have this idea of the family of God, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And here's the thing about family. We're not bound together in families because we always get along and like each other. We're, we're bound together in families because we are born the same blood and we are in the same household. And that is why he chooses the language of family. He doesn't choose families because they're perfect. He chooses them because they're imperfect. And that's how we're going to understand sometimes the messiness that is church. But there's an important distinction here. When you read the New Testament, you might get a little confused when you see the church referred to in a few different ways. And, uh, there's a theologian a few hundred years ago named John Calvin who came up with this distinction that he called uh, the visible church and the invisible church. Now, that's, those aren't terms you see from Scripture, but they align very well with what we see in Scripture. And the invisible church is the church as God sees it. And so when we talk about the invisible church, that's kind of the church universal, the uppercase C church, anywhere that there are Christians... God sees that and says, that is my church. Even if there's one Christian in a basement in China, God looks at that and sees the church. Now, the visible church is what we would call the church as man sees it, the church as people see it. It's the institutions and the buildings. And uh, the overlap between those gets really tricky. So when God is talking about the church, he's talking about the invisible church, the Christians all throughout, and in the visible church, the building of the church, the institution of the church, we may have some Christians, we may have some non-Christians here, and that's not really our call to make, but that is how God sees his church, is how the New Testament frequently talks about the church. So I think that will help clarify some things, but you also see the institution of the church emerge in the New Testament. And our second scripture today comes from the book of Acts, which for those of you who are familiar with the New Testament will not be surprised that we're pulling from the book of Acts. Uh, but what I want to warn us against here, when we read the book of Acts, there are uh, two different errors that we can easily make. And the first that we already talked about is this, ide- this idealism. We see Pentecost and we see Christians gathering and church just seems so simple in Acts. 
It just seems like, oh, they just did this and this and this, and it was perfect. Why don't we just do that and we'll be perfect? Um, but I will remind you that the rest of the Bible is filled with letters to that church correcting it. That's most of the New Testament are letters correcting the early church and telling them what they're doing wrong. And so there's no such thing as the golden era of the church. If it was, it wasn't more than a couple hours long. And so we want to steer clear of an overly simplified reading uh, where we just see the good and not the mess. And so <clears throat> the passage I'm going to pull from is the end of Ch- Acts chapter 2, and I'm just going to read it to you. It's just one verse here. Uh, but they... The Holy Spirit comes down and they start preaching and then 3,000 people come to faith and it ends the chapter this way in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's the end of the verse. And so we see four principles emerge from early, early in the church and they are these. Teaching of the Bible and sound doctrine. Two providing a place of fellowship for believers. Three, observing the sacraments, which are baptism, which was in verse 41, and the Lord's Supper, which they say they do in verse 42, and prayer. So we see just in Acts 2.42, you see that they're submitting themselves to the teaching of sound doctrine from the apostles, the place of fellowship, not, not mere friendship. It's not just social gatherings. This is deep Fellowship that cares for one another's needs and lifts up each other's burdens, which, as we see this morning, is exactly what we get to take part in year-round, but especially today as we remember those who have been in our church who have um, who've gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, That is what we have the opportunity to do today. And then observing the sacraments, which we do, uh, we'll do it next Sunday. And then finally, prayer. And so throughout Acts... We also see worship being the central gathering for Christians throughout Acts and all of the letters in the New Testament. And so out of the outpouring of these, we see a few pages later that they begin to care for the basic physical needs of the community. And the apostles insist that they can't do all of this work, but that it needs to be done. And so we get our first deacons in the book of Acts. Now, it's interesting here that in Acts 2.42, now I'm going to quote to you something from... um, what I consider to be, uh, what's definitively considered to be the binding document for everyone who calls themselves a Presbyterian. It's the Westminster Confession of Faith. In chapter 25, 3, it says this, that there are three marks of the church. The preaching of the word, the administration of sacraments, and the exercise of church discipline. And so, now notice it doesn't say that you have to have a building and a budget and all these other things. It says anywhere that those three things exist... That's the church. And, but if you have the preaching of the word and the administration of sacraments, but not the church discipline, then you don't have the church. Or if you have church discipline and the sacraments, but you're not preaching the word of God, then it's not the church. You see where that goes. Now, church discipline is not a very popular idea, but I will suggest to you, at the very least, if we want to weed out the hypocrisy in the church, church discipline serves that function. If we are not holding each other to the standards that we have agreed to, that's how we say one thing and do another. And that's how, as a community, we allow that to happen. Now, that will not weed out everyone's definition of what it means for churches to be hypocritical, but it's a good start. 
And then, if I can be so bold, I'll add one more mark of the church, which is love. Jesus says this in John 13, By this, all will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And so, <clears throat> the idea here is that it's so central. What binds the church together is Jesus himself and the gospel. Jesus' death on the cross, our need for God, his providing that need on the cross with Jesus and his resurrection from the dead is what binds all Christians together. And even though we may be part of different institutions, we are all part of one uppercase C, invisible church, the church as God sees it. And so the church proclaims the love of Jesus to the world. But here's the, here's the tricky thing. While the, while the church proclaims the love of Jesus to the world, the church is not a replacement for Jesus. What do I mean by that? Now, if the church and fellow Christians fill the community's social, economic, and spiritual needs without connecting them to Jesus, then they're not the church. Now, so sometimes we get so busy doing the work of Jesus that we give people the fruits as if they're connected to Jesus, but we don't offer them the most loving thing that we have to offer, which is Jesus himself. And so that is how the church uh, can become what it needs to be. The church encompasses um, all of these things. They're filling each other's needs. They're carrying each other's burdens. They're loving one another. But at the end of the day, what makes the church the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so every Sunday that you come here, you should hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to you uh, and to everyone who comes here. And so uh, that is, in rough terms there, what it, the church is intended to be. It's this community of believers, the community is a big part, that gather around prayer and the preaching of the word and uh, observing the sacraments. <coughs> now you may think to yourself, well... That sounds like, you know, that sounds great. That sounds like Acts 2. That sounds really biblical. But churches do a lot more than that. So what about that stuff? Churches do a great many things that expand beyond, because almost everything I said fits into our one or two hours on Sunday morning. Preaching of the word, prayer, uh, the sacraments, and providing a place of fellowship for believers. And so what's with all this other stuff that we do? And that's where we say, the church encompasses many things, but not everything. And now we get to the kingdom. The kingdom of God, and this is my shortest point, by the way. Uh, the kingdom of God. Uh, there's a couple different theologians I'm going to quote to you. He's, the first one says this. To Jesus, the kingdom exists where God supernaturally carries through his supremacy against all opposing powers and brings men and women to the willing recognition of the same. Another theologian says this, the kingdom is God's historical program bringing all areas of life on earth under the subject to Jesus Christ. And so here's a simpler way to say this. If there is a Christian who's a surgeon and goes into work on Tuesday and saves a life, that is not the work of the church, but that is most certainly the work of the kingdom. If you have a neighbor or a coworker who's fallen on hard times and you cook them a meal and take that over to them, that is not necessarily the work of the church. It's not a church program or church ministry, but it is kingdom ministry. And so the kingdom is even bigger than the walls of the church. And um, it is essentially this. It is Christians being Christians in all spheres of life. So the church, the job is to lift high Jesus and proclaim the gospel. And the kingdom is to, 
is to apply that to every area of life. And so, the work of the kingdom, which I hope you get in the rough idea here, the work of the kingdom is way too big to fit in the life of the church in terms of the institution. If we try to bring every kingdom activity into the structure of the church, you're either going to cripple the church or minimize the kingdom. I'll say that again. If you try to fit all of the activity of the kingdom of God into the institution of the church, you're either going to cripple the church or you're going to minimize the work of the kingdom because the kingdom of God is bigger than any one institution can possibly contain. The kingdom of God is all of us acknowledging that everything in all of creation is created by God. It is under God's sovereign reign and rule. And as Christians, we are reclaiming his creation and his name. And so uh, whatever your line of work or study or however you fill your days, there is an opportunity for the kingdom to bring that to its fullest. And so the question of the day, now that I've defined all those things, I want to, I want to apply them. So I know that's a lot of information I gave you here. But the first thing I want to say, first of all, how do we avoid becoming hypocrites? In short, we can't. Sorry. That's not, that's not the good, the gospel's the good news. That was not the good news. Um, but we can't avoid becoming hypocrites. We do our best to follow after Jesus. And here's the other thing. We do our best to follow after Jesus. And the only way I can think of now, this is not a perfect avoidance of hypocrisy, but we can try our best to be honest about ourselves with others, especially those outside the church. Now, it's very interesting to me. We've been uh, going through in session, which is our governing body. All the elders of the church has been sharing their testimonies. Uh, they've been due two a night for the year. And guess what? I have not yet heard a testimony of a perfect person. In fact, there are amazing stories of God's transforming work in the leadership of our church and in the pews of our church. And if we don't show that to people, then sure, we look like hypocrites. But if we're willing to be honest about our imperfections and where God has met us where we are, then I think that is our best chance at avoiding hypocrisy. And the other way to avoid hypocrisy, we do every Sunday before we even hear the word of God preached in the sermon, is we come to God and we confess all of the ways that we have not lived up to what we say we believe, what we say uh, God has done in our lives, we fail to do every single week, and so we confess those. And so that's the first question. How do we avoid being hypocrites? Uh, we can and we can't. Ultimately, you can't do it. You will always fall short of whatever standard you set for yourself. However, there are ways to avoid the appearance of hypocrisy. And the second question, which comes in three answers, how can the church become what it is supposed to be? Now, this is a hard question. And I know I'm going to hear from a couple people the things that I've left out, but I'm not going to be able to say everything. But the first is this. Uh, and now these three answers mirror the three points of the sermon. There's the church, the Christian, the church, and the kingdom. And so how can the church become what it is supposed to be? The first is this. Um, one, ask yourself this question. What can I be doing to live a Christian life? Now, I encourage you to pray for God, pray to God and ask uh, how you can be fruitful, how you can be a blessing to those around you, and how you can find ways to love God and love your neighbor. 
And that's, if you want to see the church become the church, that's the fastest way to do it is for Christians to act like Christians. So you say, what can I do to be living more in conformity to the way that Jesus has given us, Jesus has commanded us to live? That is the best way for the church to become a church. So for Christians to become Christians is the best way. Secondly, what can I do to be a part of the church? And so here we need to think about not only just regularly coming in to hear about Jesus, but celebrating Jesus and connecting with others. Now, some of us are really, we like coming to church because we like the fellowship aspect of it. But a lot of people come to church. They like connecting with other people, but they don't really interested in the God part of it. And so for the, if that's where you are, then you need to find a way to connect with Jesus and worship Jesus. Make that be the center of your Sunday morning experience. Now, some people just want to have a relationship between me and Jesus, and we don't really care about other people around us. And so if that's where you are, in order for the church to be the church, we have to have both of those things in unison, loving God and loving your neighbor and being able to proclaim the gospel on a weekly basis. And then the third thing is this. So these are all questions that you ask yourself. What can I do to be living the Christian life? What can I do to be part of the church? And third, what can I do to be a part of the kingdom? And you ask yourself where you can bring the kingdom of God into your daily work life, into your relationships with your friends and your neighbors. In order to do this, you need to think about your work, your daily calling. And it doesn't have to be a job, but whatever you find yourself doing, you need to think of that as a ministry, which means you need to not think of ministry as only official programs at the church that have a budget and a committee for oversight. And we don't think of ministries as something that is only real if it is attached to the church in some official way. But everything that a Christian is called to do becomes a ministry when we have given over our entirety of our lives to Jesus. And so the church can become what it is intended to be when a Christian acts like a Christian, a church acts like a church, and the kingdom takes full reign over all that God has entrusted to it. Would you please join me in prayer?